It's too much. Ladies and gentlemen. Shirts and bandanas. Hey, tiny thing that got me, I switched the planner. Bulletproof this radio scanners. Balling to they banners. You getting too much bread, they try to jam you. Boy from the hood, forgot White House clamors. Side y'all, I don't agree with y'all parents. Politicians never did shit for me. Except lie to me to start history. Wanna give me jail time in the fine? Fine, let me commit a real crime. Kilo for cheap keef Out of spite, I just might flood these streets Hear the freedom in my speech Got an onion from Universal, read it and weep Would've bought the nest of Brooklyn for free Except I made millions off of you fucking dweeb I still own the building, I'm still keeping my seats Y'all buy that bullshit, y'all better keep your receipts Obama said chill, you gon' get me impeached You don't need this shit anyway, chill with me on the beach Y'all gon' learn today Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Uncultured Bias. I'm your name. I'm your host, Kamara Williams. Uh, you know, we had to actually start that off appropriately, man. You know, uh, y'all gonna learn today <laughs> from the lyrics of the great hip-hop revolutionary socialist champion himself, Sean Carter, of Che Guerrera wearing fame, shirt-wearing fame. Um, I think he's married to someone famous, but I can't really place who that person is. At any rate, I thought it was appropriate to start this program with this song that marries our hip-hop culture with the island of Cuba. Cuba, of course, being a communist regime led under the brutal dictatorship and, of course, this communist society deriving its roots from socialist principles of Karl Marx. Hip-hop is socialism, an egalitarian system where the art form is shared among all groups, not just a protected class. It's no wonder it's often the sound of revolution. It's the reason why a hip-hop song called Patria Vida, which is Spanish for Homeland and Life, a song created by Afro-Cubans, called for revolution. But before we can get into all of that, we have to figure out that Black America's relation to Cuba falls long before this popular song that is starting to revolution that we see in the streets. A lot of it would actually stem from our fascination with this cultural icon, political icon of Fidel Castro. But to understand Castro, we must further go back than his 1959 ascension to power. We have to start with the man who he replaced, Fulgencio Batista, a leader who was a non-commissioned officer before starting a leadership in 1944. He initiated a coup uh, uh, while initially running the government behind the scenes as a general until finally appointing himself as president. With that, he wrote a new constitution, inserting equality for women's rights, an eight-hour workday, and reforms designed to bring economic prosperity. Ironically, it was Batista's uh, constitution that the U.S. government um, was very nervous about because here's an island 90, 90 miles from the shore of, its, of Miami or from uh, America, and yet it was creating all these reforms that they called socialistic and communist ideals. Cuba became a tourist destination for Americans, especially around the Prohibition era. It was a perfect destination for Americans because of its 90-mile proximity not only to U.S. shores, but its open and relaxed liquor laws and its cheap way of living. 
This allowed this allowed the U.S. mafia to infiltrate by setting up a shop of establishing liquor supply lines as well as other forms of illegal activities. Opening up the Cuban markets, this allowed for not only a an official relation to Cuba, but also unofficially. Of course, we talked about with the mafia with uh, gambling, establishing cas- casinos and whatnot. And U.S. capitalists investing in the sugarcane fields, which was the primary asset of the Cuban people. By 1944, Batista actually had stepped down and he picked his successor, Carlos Zayas. Because of the rampant corruption behind the Zayas um, presidency, uh, the mafia had grown in size and in influence. This actually became a such a problem that it started to affect the Cuban people. Rampant corruption infiltrated the entire all forms of society. It was at that point that Batista actually came back into power in around 1952, prompted by his good friends, uh, Meyer Lansky, who became actually the minister of gambling under the new Batista leadership. But Batista came back. He wasn't the same Batista that left. See, Batista, when he left power, he went to Miami and, you know, actually luxuriated in, um, in American ideals in society. Coming back now, he was now considered more of a strong man. And he wanted to reinstitute the quote-unquote tourism um, paradise that he had left behind. So he started strong-arming, he became a strong-armed man in uh, instituting laws that prohibited any form of desertion from his vision of the island. This became more of a military-backed, um, military-backed government and not one that was based on egalitarian rule. Ironically, he tore up his own constitution, the one that he authored years, years prior. Now, economically, things were fine at Cuba because they were the number three Latin American tourist attraction during the time of the Batista regime. The dichotomy between the tourist lifestyle and the military-imposed actual life of the Cuban people was evident. And out of despair and the downtrodden life rose a rebellion led by a Jesuit lawyer named Radical named Fidel Castro. Radicalized by his experiences on the island and traveling within Latin America, he began to develop this Latin diaspora, diaspora attitude and complete distaste for American imperialism, especially in the part, on the part of America. Castro and his rebels hosted a coup d'etat of the Batista regime, instituted an immediate communist ideology marrying Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution of the early 20th century Russia. Castro then kicked out all the supporters of the Batista regime, which included Cuban aristocratic and bourgeoisie citizens. Castro immediately instituted a literacy program and free health care, as well as pri- providing free education, particularly among the Afro-Cubans, who the literacy rate was at 6% prior to the revolution. That ju- number jumped to 60% by 1962. Sounds great, right? Well, we'll come back to that. Castro continued his ideal of racial equality by limiting segregation in the Cuban society. For example, in Cuba, before the Castro Revolution, the city of Santa Clara was known for its entrenched racial segregation that was much like that of the American South. Residents of Santa Clara were known for their leisurely strolls around Vidal Park, but as they walked, they did so in separate lines, one designated for for Negroes and one for Blancos. Such traditions ended after Castro came into power. This mythology of Castro built on racial um, egalitarian equality um, provided such a contextual inconsistency on how we evaluate his history. There's just no different in the relation of how the black American construct and how we view America. 
Yes, Bla- Castro was an unabashed supporter of black liberation theory. His co- Castro's commitment to black Americans was shown early on in his um, ar- upon his arrival at the national stage, an international stage, when notably he came to New York and met with the leftist revolutionary of Malcolm X, stating to Malcolm X and Harlem in front of the cameras that should Malcolm ever want to immigrate to um, leave the U.S. and immigrate to Cuba, he has a home. Five years later, Malcolm X was, of course, assassinated, many still convinced by the hands of the U.S. government. One of the most telling uh, ideas of Castro's involvement in international racial um, politics was how he sent 25,000 troops to Angola along the, along faction, alongside factions to help end the apartheid go, um, government of South Africa. Keep in mind, the United States had been a very much hands-off on apartheid South Africa, and really, most of America really didn't understand the concept of segregation in South Africa, but it was Cuba who decided to involve themselves in an area to really try to eliminate segregation in an, on, on the continent of Africa. Of course, the uh, Anti-Apartheid Act 1986, 1986 um, would go into um, go into law, but it was it was actually Castro who was on the front lines of this particular movement. Of course, Castro again on the United States side would continue to his ideal of the Black Liberation Theory by providing housing for Asata Secure Asata Shakur. Um, when she actually escaped a New York Jersey state prison um, for the murder of Vernon Forrester. Of course, Ashada Kaur has maintained her, her innocence in that regard. But it was Patel Castro who continually, on and on again, continued to align himself with black liberation, with the black, with the black Panther Party and any other civil rights movement. Now, if we stop right there, that's all good. But again, there's the ugly side of history. Because, yes, we remember how we mentioned the literacy program that uh, Castro instituted on the island. Well, that literacy program actually became an indoctrination for, um, form of um, suppression. The education that he was providing, yes, they were learning how to read, but they were also being taught only certain state ideals that he instituted. And remember how Castro eliminated or got rid of Batista regime, and then at that time he kicked out all of the uh, supporters of uh, Batista, including American capitalists. Well, in 1968, long after he had taken over power, he actually state he um, uh, authorized the state takeover of all the businesses. Ninety percent of the businesses that were that were created in the after effect of the revolution now were owned by this by the government. Nationalizing the banks, eliminating the ability for those in Cuba to actually earn income. He also, at the same time, uh, eliminated any idea of free thought and um, eliminated people, descendants of, of any of the uh, uh, descendants of dissidents of the people who would look against uh, Cuba's uh, government in a negative way. Torture, um, uh, massacre, and then, of course, uh, kidnappings, all under the Castro regime. Now, this is the same, very same person who brought revolution to those of the proletariat, 
but now he was brutalizing these very same people. It is very easy for those in America to say, all right, look at Castro and how he tried to work for the people, but it was those people that he was actually taking advantage of. Yes, it's true that segregation may have been eliminated, but the degradation was even more, more, more present. Castro proved to be even more of a despot as a revolutionary. revolutionary. Some even wonder if his true aim of erasure of racial lines was to thumb his nose at the one thing he thought better of with the American idealism of um, racial progress. The honoring of the black liberation concept was probably not born out of the need of equality, but possibly born out of his need to bolster his legend. The question remains, how could someone who championed equality racially could create such an inequitable economic and social environment on his very own island? Such is the dichotomy of Castro. Which brings us to where we're at right now, because here's a person who, in his life, he banned free speech. He banned freedom of assembly. He banned free press. He executed and jailed thousands of political opponents. He actually allowed people, Cuban, um, the very same people who were the uh, proletariat, to leave the island. And in 19, 1980s, I believe it was 71% of those who actually immigrated to the United States, all those were of blue-collar workers. So it wasn't the aristocratic bonds that were of the earlier generation, the first uh, number of exiles. It was those very same people who the revolution was, ba- was based on. And it's the same level of people who are on the ground right now screaming for freedom. Of course, all of this is um, emboldened by the U.S. economic policy that began in the 1960s because Castro's faithfully aligning himself with the Soviet Union and allowing the Soviet Union to have a foothold in its construction of of political ideology. That embargo that was in place in the 1960s remains in fact today. In fact, it was strengthened under uh, the previous president. So then it leads us to where we're at today, where a Afro-Cubans began this chant of Patria Vida, of trying to encourage those on the island to rise up and to fight against this oppressive regime that was put in place by the very revolutionaries that had authorized this particular, um, this particular ideology. Castro, Cuba, America, a very, very complicated subject that we hope to delve into today. And, you know, I hope I have done it justice by explaining to, I know that was a very elongated opening, but I really wanted to set the, the timeline here of what we're doing. And, you know, we're going to address all that. Before we do that, I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. Uh, if you're on Apple or Spotify, um, continue to share it. If you're on Apple, um, rate the episode, um, rate it and leave a, a commentary. Cause that's a part of the algorithms. Um, we like to give a shout out to our sponsors of always on our show is my compass tax.com eight, five, zero two, seven, three, seven, one, nine, three. That's my compass tax.com. Also want to give a shout out to Keystone global real estate. That's Keystone global real estate.com or you can reach them at four, seven, six, eight, zero, eight, five, one, zero. If you're in the market for real estate, and of course, our law firm of Smith and Williams Trial Group, you can reach us at 888-SWTG-LAW, uh, 888-SWTG-LAW, or reach me at cwilliams at swtglaw.com. All right, so with me today to discuss uh, Cuba is my special guest, uh, Lisette Villier. 
Jimenez. Hope I got that right. Close. Close. <laughs> <laughs> the Lis- effort was there. Yeah, Lisette. Lis- let me try. Valle. Lisette Valle Jimenez. Perfect. Okay, Lisette Valle Jimenez. See, I'm not. I'm not fluent in Spanish. My best friend Jamie, she's very. She's actually fluent in Spanish, so she's going to like be cringing listening to this podcast. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. You know, I um, I hope I didn't butcher the opening, and I was I was. You know, from from what I know, and I just want to preface by saying that I did not get to go to school in Cuba. Yeah. So from what I know of the points that you shared, um, they sounded accurate yeah. from the recollections of my parents and members of my family. I think you did it justice. Perfect. Perfect. I, I, and that's really important because I feel like this is a subject that um, I want to be respectful for. And I want to make sure that we are hitting every single um aspect of Cuba and America. And so um, before we get into all that, uh, tell the world a little bit about yourself and how you became so engaged about just, uh, you know, the comings and goings of the Cuban people. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, my name is Lisette Valle Jimenez. Um, and there's really nothing miraculous or unique about my story compared to a lot of what we've been hearing um, and witnessing and reading about. So my family and I, we left Cuba in 1995. We did not seek political asylum. We did not come by vessel um, by the sea. We actually came on a plane. And one of the ways at that time that you can come from Cuba to the United States um, was by invitation. And I'm not sure that that's really the best term for it so definitely fact check me on everything that I say but my grandfather many many decades before had sought political asylum and was living in the United States at the time and then thought to claim my father who was still living in Cuba as we were and it was by my mother's insistence that we not be separated and that we come along with him and that's how we made our way to central Florida which I think is another important item to mention we did not go to Miami So my experiences are not identical to those of the very large majority that we're hearing coming out of South Florida. Mm. Um, So that's a little bit about my background in Cuba. And and from the other item I wanted to share as well is that I'm a female. I am a black female in America. I am a mother. I work uh, a white collar job. And I think this all plays into the the narrative of my perspective and who I am. My parents were uh, seen as intellectuals in Cuba. My family in Cuba, uh, both my maternal and paternal side, still reside on the island uh, in various places. And I do consider us to be a family of intellectuals. We have everything from doctors to dentists to engineers. My father was an engineer on the island. My mom was a marine biologist. And that's not saying much, even with that, because a lot of what you mentioned about Castro and what he did, I think Cuba currently, it's illiteracy, or excuse me, it's literacy rate, it's like 99.6. Right. So if you throw a penny in the air, you're bound to hit someone with multiple degrees in Cuba. That's just right. how it goes. Yeah. Um, but I want to mention that because their story and the items that were shared uh passed on to me from their perspective have a lot to do with pride of country 
have a lot to do with um, their education. That's that's a big factor that Cubans all over the world, I think, are very proud, prideful of. Um, but anyways, I don't want to go on a tangent. That no, just, that's, it's, you know. this is this is the platform to do it. I really, yeah. I, I'm welcoming that. I really want you to, you know, educate because a lot of people who are going to listen to this podcast, they don't know. Yeah, we just hear you know the politicized version of it, and we'll get into like really the politics in in a moment. But I just really want to hear the personal, you know, stories and how it really it matters, right? Because I think that's how people we put. We get through problems when we humanize everything. Yeah. So it's I'm 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 down for it. I'm with it. Well, thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah, so. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. But but yeah, I mean, just I guess just the really those are really the big points that I wanted to hit, so you guys can understand a little bit about my family's background, um, who still resides on the island. Really, the majority of my family, um, young children, elderly, you name it, and we range from the lightest of light to the darkest of dark. That's the other factor that I think um, Americans, non-Cuban Americans forget, especially if you're looking at the demographic in Miami, and it looks that way for a variety of reasons, but Cuba is very diverse. Yeah, We have many races in Cuba, but the unique thing about Cuba is that when you ask um, an Asian Cuban, a white Cuban, a black Cuban, what they are, they say they're Cuban. Yeah. And that pride is still, uh, still extends to those that live here in the United States. I have begun to use the distinction of Afro-Cuban because I aligned myself with the injustices and with the discrimination and with the inequality that often occurs in the United States um, with members of the black community. And I do think it's important to call out that I myself recognize myself as a black woman because I did not always. So all of those elements make up who I am and where I've come from and, and a lot of my views. Yeah, that's dope. That's dope. I um I just, you know, point of context, one of the things that um I don't want to escape, like the, the first wave of those who um, were exiled out of um, Cuba were those of the uh, considered quote unquote the aristocratic bourgeoisie. The second wave, and I think you, you, you spoke on this, was when um, Castro. I think he opened up the border of America. Um, I, forget, I don't know if I'm saying that name correctly, but he opened up a port and allowed those from um, Florida to come and get their relatives from um, from Cuba and bring them to the United States. And this is like in the 1970s, around the time. I don't know if that. Well, what I, and again, this is, yeah, you know, this is, this is coming from a lot of, uh, sometimes from things that I have been told by family members, by others, by, you know, looking into myself. So it could be completely off. Please yeah. keep that in mind. But you might be referring to the eighties. Okay. When they opened up their doors, um, and, and basically said, if you want out, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was, I was, I was not thinking about that one. That okay. 1980s. Yeah, I remember that. He was pretty much told everybody, you know, told him if you don't want to be here anymore, um, leave. And that was actually because of it was in this the fall of the Soviet Union and the Soviet dollars had stopped pouring into Cuba, and then there was so much uh, rampant, you know, uh, um, anti-Castro feeling on the island that he was like, if y'all don't want to be here, leave. But also at the same time, he also sent 
um, that's when we had the big influx of the blue collar Americans coming in to um, the ports of Florida. But he also, in order to thumb his nose at America, at America, he sent in like over like 10,000 like criminals alongside those um, and those who were considered institutionally insane um, in order to just pretty much thumb his nose at uh, America. But yeah, no, I was thinking like it was called the, uh, I don't know. It was, uh, uh, I forget what the term is, but yeah, I was thinking about how they, he just allowed people to come into Cuba and bring people out. Um, and so I'm sure those who are of Cuban descent can, and uh, can actually uh, tell me exactly when that actually happened. But yeah, I, you know, one of the things I think that's fascinating about your story is that there's often this idea that it was those who just came to the island or came off the island, they all came from um, general means of income. Like high, like they were all high earners, right? And then they had to change their lifestyles. You know, they were once doctors and then became, you know, service people at gas stations or they once were professors or business owners and then became maids here in the service industry. And so, but... In reality, that just wasn't everybody that was exiled from Cuba. It was a large mattering of people all across all economic um, portions of the island. And it really was the people who, just because they didn't support, because the narrative is oh, they didn't support the Batista. But in reality, it's because they didn't support um, Castro and his and his regime. And that's what a lot of people, a lot of times, is... is Misconstrued. There's a there's a line of demarcation there that a lot of people don't understand. Am I am I correct on that? You know, what I think is interesting about about the statement that you made there. So my family, you know, I, I told you a little bit about my parents and their background in Cuba. They mm-hmm. actually had to enter. Um, you know, I would say that they would have had white collar jobs in right. Cuba if we put, if we place that categorization on it. Yeah. But when they came, uh, when we immigrated Cuba and came to the United States, they had to work. Mm-hmm. blue collar jobs yeah cuban degrees were not transferable in the united states you're basically having to start over yeah and when you have a uh, a young child the idea of prioritizing your education and starting your degree over versus we have a mouth to feed it's a very tough position to be in so my parents actually worked in factories here in america making purses cleaning homes cleaning offices um construction my parents have always worked blue collar jobs their entire uh, life here in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we find ourselves now in a place where there's rampant uh, political turmoil happening on the island. And one of the things I really want to, um, I want to um, first introduce everybody because they're not understanding what's happening. I'm going to play a clip and just try to give everybody an understanding of like what's happening and how we where how we got here on this island. So uh, bear with me. COVID vaccines. The government blames the U.S. for the unrest and is rallying its own supporters. They are crying out for freedom in the streets of Havana. This the greatest show of discontent with the socialist government since the 1990s. Like back then, the trigger for this protest is the desperate economic situation. Right now, the country is suffering from food shortages. We're here because of the repression of the people. They are starving us to death. Havana is collapsing. We have no homes, nothing. Soon the police arrive. 
and they begin to drag off people in the crowd. The arrests and the violence only make the demonstrators angrier. We're not afraid, they cry out. State security beat me and my daughter, a child. They beat us just because we were walking down the street. Supporters of the government have been out in the streets too. President Miguel Diaz-Canal himself led this rally. It was organised quickly in a town outside Havana where the anti-government protests began early on Sunday. We came here to show together with the revolutionaries here that the streets belong to us. With the president encouraging supporters to mobilise against opponents, there were ugly confrontations. Here, revolutionaries detained opposition protesters. The Cubans who are here, we are never going to give up this revolution, never. A communist regime has ruled Cuba since 1959. It survived the fall of the Soviet Union and the death of its founder, Fidel Castro. Now it is again being challenged. But displays like these show it is unlikely to go without a fight. Ted Henkin is an associate professor at the City University of New York, specialising in Cuba, and he joins me now. Ted, thanks for your time. Scenes like this are pretty rare in Cuba. Uh, who's behind these protests? Well, I think it's fairly obvious that the people are behind it. This is a, a protest that has no leader, has no organisation. That may be a weakness of it going forward. But it seems to have broken through because of the accumulated frustration over the past two, one or two years with the economic crisis, food shortages, medical shortages caused primarily by the economic system of Cuba that's inefficient and unproductive. And on top of that, of course, you have the U.S. embargo that isolates or attempts to isolate and cut Cuba off. I think the people are caught in the middle and they're fed up with excuses, with lies, with manipulation. Uh, the government claims that this is orchestrated, paid by the United States. How do you get people in six or eight cities all across Cuba, thousands of people in each case, to protest uh, from the United States? It's ridiculous to claim that. At the same time, we don't know really what the next step is, how the government is responding now. It seems to be inflaming the protesters and not leading to any kind of negotiated solution. Could this be the start, do you think, of a major opposition movement against the communist regime? Well, I would say that it's a continuation. Back in November of 2000, you had the beginnings of an unprecedented uh, coming together of artists, intellectuals, who had mostly kept quiet, kept their heads down so they could keep their jobs and their positions. And they came out in the street at the end of November to protest, and that was scuttled, but it has kind of gone underground. It has built up a following. That led to uh, the, 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 the chant and the song, Patria y Vida, Homeland and Life, that was directly aimed at the government's claim of either you choose the homeland or death, that was a very popular song, and that was the thing that many of the protesters were chanting. So this seems to be 
a continuation of that, but it's been triggered by the scarcity of medicines and the spike, the sudden and deadly spike in COVID cases and COVID deaths in various parts of the country. So um, that, was, that was a lot, but I hope it actually gave gave people a understanding of what's happening on the island. And um, one of the things I think was uh, is fascinating, a lot of things are fascinating, is that uh, this all sparked because of the because of COVID, and you know, really, or the economic. Um, it was a, it was long time coming. There was a lot of. Um, frustration uh, regarding this regime but it really started to come to a head when people were finding out that they couldn't get medicine they couldn't get vaccine or they couldn't get back um, vaccinated and then it come you know combining that with the economic structure of the island and the inability for those to actually purchase um, items or I think one thing I read and you can t- correct me if I'm wrong here is that um, they've made <laughs> They've made um, items available in American dollars, but people on Cuba can't even earn uh, American dollars. So what is that even about? Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack, isn't there? A lot there to unpack. I I want to focus on the narrative really quickly yeah. um, because I, I do appreciate the, the way that you said it. I know that we're hearing a lot of things from the international community about why now? Why is it starting now? Why are the protests beginning now? Is it, you know, is it COVID? Is it the embargo? Who, what is to blame, et cetera? Listen, 62 years of a dictatorship. My dad was born when Castro came into power. Yeah. That's all he's ever seen on the island, along with many other Cubans. 62 years of tyranny. It was bound to implode. Yeah. And when hospitals collapse, Right when the medical system in Cuba collapsed because it did, yes, as a result of COVID, the infrastructure was never there to handle something like COVID. Right. We know very well here in the United States how much it rocked our worlds. Right. Right. With everything, uh, all of the privileges that we have, the access that we have, the money that we have, it impacted us and still continues to impact us with the new variant. Imagine a country like Cuba an explosion waiting to happen right but i like to start off by saying that it was what prompted this was people being sick and tired for 62 years under a dictatorship yeah and then you have covid yeah and then you have the failed uh economy so all these other elements yes that's what brought people to the streets that's what brought people to say i have nothing else to lose right you can't take care of me you can't provide for me. We have a phrase that's been circulating. You took everything from us when you didn't even realize you ended up taking our fear. Mm. And that's why people took to the streets. Wow. Wow. So it's uh, just kind of even giving some context to where um, that song, Patria Evita, Homeland and Life, it's a direct, play a direct and they didn't say this in the clip but a direct shot at Fidel Castro's slogan that was put all over the island is homeland or death right and um I think that's something that we have to uh highlight that you're right the people on there like we're so sick and tired we're tired of being sick and tired 
And so they went ahead and, you know, they're rising up against this very uh, government that is um, been oppressive or rep- um, to them for the last, he said, 62 years. You know, um, the the lyrics in that song in the second stanza, they talked about uh, you traded Che Guerrero and Marti, Marti for currency. Um, everything has changed. It's no longer the same between you and me. There's no there's between you and me. There is an abyss. Advertising a paradise, paradise in Varadero, while mothers cry for the children who are left. You five nine me double nine double two. Not sure what that means. Oh, double two six two. I'm I'm saying I'm thinking what it said. Five you five nine me double two. I'm not sure what that means. So. 59, right? You right. 59, 1959 when Fidel came into power. Yeah. And the double two, I've heard various things about this, but the the most recent one that I heard was a double two is actually has to do with the game of dominoes. Oh, okay. And when, uh, my understanding is when both players end up having the twos, gotcha. it, it's kind of like a lockdown. You can't, the game can't progress from there. Mm. So that's what, okay. I was trying, I was trying to figure out with them. I, I figured the five, nine was that, but I was like, what is double two? And I was like, I don't understand that. So then, um, then it continues going, you know, true story, not the wrong one. We are high. We are, uh, um, we are the dignity of the entire, um, people trampled on at gunpoint and words are still nothing. No more lies. My people ask for freedom. No more doctrines. There's no longer that's let's no longer shout homeland or death, but homeland and life and start building what we dream of. That the blood does not continue to flow for wanting to think differently. Who told you that Cuba is yours? If my Cuba belongs to all, if anything, my Cuba belongs to all my people. Your time up, your time is up. Silence is broken. So Very powerful. Yeah. So I, I I'm, cause I'm, I'm going to play this song uh, later, later on, but I, it's all in Spanish. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I wanted to at least uh, drop some of the lyrics that um, are, of course, they say it much more beautifully than I do. But but um, I think it was important for people to hear the lyrics and the thing that has sparked. I think you're right. You're right, though. It's an inflection point because it's just not COVID. It's um, years of um, you abuse. Know, abuse. Yeah. Abuse. Yeah. And then the people are are at their point of there's nothing left for us to do. We are hungry. You know, we are tired. We are, um, you know, we are are are, are angry. And we want change. Um, and I think that's really the most incredible thing that you're seeing now. And if it, and I will say that's all revolutions ideally start from that same place, right? Right. It starts from a, a the people on the ground who are tired of, you know, those above them putting their foots on their necks. And I, I, I and if anybody that should understand this are the plight of like black Americans. Black Americans should be ideally understand what it's looked like to be an, to see a repressive system, to see people um, constantly, uh, you know, uh, stamping down on their freedoms and trying to curate their thoughts. And of course, America is allows you to have the freedom of expression. Cuba does not. America allows you to have the freedom of the form to, um, congregate and to actually uh, express and to actually uh, gather. Cuba does not, right? Um, America does not jail uh, those who are anti-America. You al- you're still allowed to get on social media. Cuba does not even allow you to. There's no internet on the on island, or at least they block internet on the island. 
So there's a lot that, um, you know, those in black America can relate to for those on the island. Um, you know, you want to offer some thoughts on that? I do. I, one thing that comes to mind that I think everyone, right, not just black Americans can relate to, but black Americans in particular, sure. Um, let's all just remember the history we've been taught about the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Propaganda, psychological trauma by your abuser. The way Cuba has been structured from my perspective, remember I left when I was four years old. So what I know, a lot of it is some from memory, some from the experiences of family members and friends, et cetera, the news, you know, you know how that goes. But Cuba has made it so that its people get just enough. Yeah. Just enough to not complain. Just enough to say, see, we are being taken care of. They do care about us. Just enough. But when that crumbled, just like we mentioned earlier, when that crumbled and they could no longer provide that just enough, that's when everything started to to resurface. And so I just want to address very quickly how people say, well, you know, how could this have gone long for gone as long as it did it's just it's psychological trauma folks how many times have we heard that we need to break our own generational curses Mm. how many times that's a perfect example of it i just wanted to touch on that very quickly but if you wouldn't mind just repeating your question no i'm just i'm just saying that it's there's a, a relational there is a clear directed relational um relationship between the black american experience and the cuban um, experience as far as wanting to rise up and assert its voice in the um, in the tailwinds of oppression, right? And so it's one of those things that we we see and we should be able to recognize. But what ended up happening in this country is that we've de- politicians have politicized the Cuban experience, um, have utilized the Cuban. Um, the 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 you know Cuban exiles as a political ploy to create a um, faction of you know Cuba Cubans who you know it's almost like they're looked at in the immigration community as having a separate but equal <laughs> opportunity in this in this country. Of course, one of those things because the, the wet foot, dry foot. Um, ability to come onto the land. For those who are not familiar with the wet foot, dry foot, it was the idea that, you know, should you be able to come on to Cuba, you would be fast-tracked in the immigration office and and be able to seek um, uh, nationalization here on in America. Of course, that was directly in light of, because of the um, Cold War stance America had against Cuba. So for a lot of times, those in different communities, I just did a podcast on Haiti, Haitians look at Cubans and be like, you know, they're treated a little bit differently than us. And so then what happens, it creates this, you know, thing against other immigrants, black immigrants in particular, that they, it's separate, right? And they don't want, and, and it's instead of this disdain that was created, not by Cuban people, but by the politicians who had a, had an idea of trying to play politics games on um, what was happening to the Cuban immigrants. 
now there's a divisiveness and you know it's so in insepid within that relationship that i wonder where do we how do we even like um uh, uh bring it back together so i feel like a lot of things contribute to the way perhaps the um african-american community sees the cuban community versus how other immigrants from the caribbean see the cuban community yes the, mm-hmm. the wet foot dry foot if you come from cuba and you successfully make it onto american soil mm-hmm. uh, you would not be turned around that has since been eliminated eliminated yeah um and even prior to that, right, um, I think I was looking at this just a few weeks ago, there have been things that occurred within the Cuban community that have been frowned upon within the the African-American community. If memory serves me right, when Nelson Mandela came, yeah. I forget what year this was, yeah. he was turned away by, I, I think it was a Cuban mayor at the time of Miami because... Nelson Mandela showed as being a sympathizer to Fidel Castro or Fidel Castro to Nelson Mandela. Right. You know, please excuse my language on that. And so by turning away Nelson Mandela, the black community did not take that well. Yeah. Rightly so. Um, There have been books that have come out about Cubans being racist. Some of them, I think one of them particular sponsored by Maya Angelou. So that also was not, you know, it was not beneficial to the Cuban community. Mm -hmm. Um, to say that there is no racism in the Cuban community is completely false. We deal with the same issues that African-Americans have to deal with in America. We have colorism. Yeah. We had segregation. Racism still exists in Cuba, even after Castro came and did all of the wonderful, miraculous things that he did. Racism continued. Mm-hmm. That didn't go away for us. So, as I mentioned earlier... I identify as a black woman in America. I am 100% Cuban. I have never denied being Cuban. I'm very proud to be Cuban. But there was a time in my life when I couldn't relate to the African-American experience. I felt like they couldn't relate to me. I couldn't relate to them. We are different. Our stories are not the same. We were impacted by some of the same things, but our stories are not the same. Now I see that our stories are very different, uh, very, excuse me, very similar very similar. And so in talking about the African-American yeah. community and in Cuba, that's why when I saw the post about what Black Lives Matter had yeah. to say, it was disappointing. Yeah. It was very disappointing. Very disappointing to a lot of us um, because the song Padre Vida, for example, as you mentioned, was created by Afro-Cubans. Two groups, Orishas, definitely recommend you look them up, an incredible group, group and gente de zona, coming together to talk about the experiences of the people in Cuba, also about the black experience of people in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And for an organization of black individuals to just not get it, yeah. especially when so many of us, and also many of us did not, but many of us did stand in solidarity with the black community during the protests over the summer. Mm-hmm. And I took to heart amplify melanated voices i took to heart everything that was happening because i understand that when someone sees me and meets me for the first time their first thought is not oh she's cuban no their thought is this is a black woman when you meet my brother who is six two six three with an afro that is a tall strong black man 
the experiences of my family in America and my own experiences reflect that of the black community. I recognize we are also privileged because it would be foolish to think that when someone learns that we are not African-American, that all of a sudden we are not treated a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So it was just disheartening. Yeah, It was very disheartening. Um, and I think the community, those that are part of the African diaspora, we have a lot, a lot of work to do and a lot to learn still. Yeah. So I'm going to read off the Black Lives Matter statement because I think it's important um, to uh, give perspective what we're talking about. Um, Black Lives Matter, the organization, and I'm going to tear into that in a moment, but uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization, uh, condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans and it urges immediately to lift the economic embargo that that cruel and inhumane policy instituted with the explicit intention of destabilizing the country, undermining Cubans' right Cubans' right to choose their own government is at the heart of Cubans' current crisis. At the heart. Keep right. Since 1962, the United States has forced pain and suffering on the people of Cuba by cutting off food, medicine, and supplies, costing the tiny island nation an estimated $130 billion. Without that money, it is harder for Cuba to acquire medical equipment needed to develop its own COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and the equipment for food production, this comes in spite of the country's strong medical care and history of lending doctors and nurses to disasters around the world. The people of Cuba are being punished by the U.S. government, being punished by the U.S. government, because the country has maintained its commitment to sovereignty of self-determination. The United States leaders have tried to crush this revolution for decades. Instead of international um, respect and goodwill, the U.S. government has only instigated suffering for the country's 11 million people, which of 4 million are black and brown. Cuba has historically demonstrated solidarity with the oppressed peoples of African descent from protecting black revolutionaries like Ashada Secure through the granting of asylum to supporting black liberation struggles in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea, New Guinea, uh, Guinea Bissau, and South Africa. We look to, for, look to President Biden to end embargo, something Barack Obama called for in 2016. This embargo is a blatant human rights violation and must come to an end. Now, Here's the thing. There's a lot to dissect in that statement, oh, right? Yeah. Um, number one, uh, Black Lives Matter organization. There's not a concert, not a concentrated body. Yes, it was created in in its inception of uh, by three black women in um, the Bay Area of California, but they purposely did not create an organization because they did not. They wanted to be a leaderless movement. All right, come back to that in a moment. Um, it has since now, you know, uh, transpired into a number of different representations throughout the country and around the world, really, of many different people taking on hold of this mantra, uh, mantra of uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter. Um, since they have now tried to, those part who were originally part of the movement, tried to coalesce and create an organization. That organization, in a sense, although have, they've tried to coalesce, do, does not speak for the majority. However, they do still have a large um, uh, xylophone that can, you know, when it, of course, they make a statement, it gets latched onto for the, their political ideology. Um, their statements in this was, um, as most things in life, when it becomes, it's a bit manipulative, was half true, right? Yes, there are things that they mentioned in there that were true, but they also fail to recognize the, the concept of that it was not solely the American government that was the um, oppression behind 
uh, the Cuban people. You fail to recognize that there was the dictatorship of Fidel Castro on his very own people that he that he so, sought to free, right? The people that he um, tortured, the people that he brutalized, the people that he um, tried to that he uh, did human uh, humane inhumane atrocities across that island. It is great that he was a such a supporter of black liberation throughout the world. But when he is seeking liberation throughout the world and he, he is stamping down on freedom within his own island, that makes him a hypocrite. And to a point you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, the reasoning behind those decisions, right? Why why did we go to Angola? Why 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 did Fidel take it upon himself to be a champion for racial equality? Mm-hmm. Right? I think that's poorly said on my part, but let's just let's just call it that for a moment. Folks, he's he was a politician. He was charismatic. He was eloquent. He was educated. Mm-hmm. He was manipulative. Mm-hmm. He knew what he was doing. He had an agenda and he did what he had to do to build his platform. And to show a certain face to the rest of the world, and as you mentioned, a different face to his own people. That's what dictators do. Right. They're not good people. Right. They're just trying to get ahead. That's that's just simply what happened. Um, and for an organization to kind of run with that. You know, it's like that idea of when you tell half the story, Right. You're not telling the whole truth. You're still a lie. A half th- you might be telling half the tr- half truth, but it's still a whole lie. Because if you're not going to be going to give context to the entirety of the situation, then you're painting a false picture of what's really happening. And you know, I, I always thought it was it, it was really fascinating that Fidel became the very person that he sought to eliminate. Right? He wanted to get rid of oppression and the monster in the government, and became the oppressor and the monster in the government. And it often goes that with people who tend to assert power through violent revolution tend to become the very monster that they saw that they actually um, were fighting against. I always made, I made it, you know, I guess a casual joke. I said, Fidel should have immediately after getting um, asserting power should have got therapy because that probably would have, eliminated a lot of the issues within the government became he became the citing force of the very things he was fighting against and had he gotten some therapy because he actually grew up in um in cuba around the time of very, a very much political um turmoil and um, an inequality and inequality you know and so you know he brought all that into his how he's my optics state of how he saw the world um and it was very troublesome and the very, you know, he's going around the world liberating black people, but then Afro-Cubans are still being persecuted on his island. So what is that about? And that's the true face, right? And that's that's the true face of what he really stood behind because it's kind of how we have conversations where we say people really show you who they are behind closed, closed door. doors. Right. Uh, that's exactly that. I think I recently came across, it was um, from NPR, Mm-hmm. And they were addressing the issues maybe a day or so ago. And they were saying that uh, this was a, an, a Cuban-American journalist who works for NPR being stationed in Havana and kind of reporting on what's happening. And they asked him you know, about the embargo. 
And he said, the embargo is about 30% of yeah. the problem. Yeah. And so again, just going back to the, you know, to the post and then focusing, focusing on that, on that half truth, 30% of the problem, not just that, but again, one of the things that frustrates me about this, something that I learned because I'm, when it comes to race, I am still learning during the Black Lives Matter protests, I learned, do not speak for people. Amplify their voices instead. Let them be the ones to tell their own story. So many Cubans took that as, how dare you? How dare you speak on our behalf when you have not walked in our shoes? Right. And this is something that I've, um, conversation that I've had with many of, of my parents' generations, my parents themselves, Many Cubans, many Cuban Republicans criticize the Black Lives Matter movement, which, again, I think has uh, a role that it's played in this. Yeah. And we'll get into the politics of everything yes. behind it. Yeah. Yes. So something that I've had to constantly um, engage in with, with my parents, my parents' generation is we do not get to judge the African-American population for what they do or do not do or that is not our story. We can empathize with them. We can support them or we can step away, but we do not get to criticize. We are not African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Slavery did not end here that long ago. Right. We did not experience those atrocities. We did not get lynched. We did not, we did not go through the African-American experience. We went through our own. Yeah. It's not a whose experience was worse situation. Right. It's just, can we all get on the same page yeah. that we each went through our own traumas? And if we truly want to call each other brothers and sisters and let's figure out how to work together. Yeah, no, that's real. And so um, the fascinating thing about the Black Lives Matter statement is that, um, as I stated earlier, the Cuban revolution, that's the current Cuban you know, revolution with the people, um, is a faceless, nameless movement, right? The same way that how Black Lives Matter started. So if there's anything, it should be like, ah, I recognize this. This is the same thing, and we should be able to recognize the voice of the people and recognize that this same, it starts from the same place of anger, of the same place of, of frustration and be like, let's get all, let's all get on the same board, um, board here and try to, you know, move forward. But what that comment or that statement was laced was, is the political intentions because of the backlash they felt from certain right wing, you know, members of the Cuban uh, community. But I want to address the U S embargo. Cause we're talking about the politics after this portion, but, um, I'm glad somebody mentioned the U.S. Uh, the sanction on Cuba. And actually, I'm going to play a clip, and then we'll we'll can delve dive right into it. So. Cuba has seen some of its biggest demonstrations in years. People took to the streets to call for food and COVID vaccines and freedom. In the U.S., this is putting pressure on a new administration that hasn't prioritized Cuban relations since President Biden took office. As Miami Herald explains, Biden is being pulled in opposite directions over Cuba. Republican lawmakers want the White House to take a forceful stance and are calling for tougher sanctions. They also want Trump-era restrictions against Cuba to stay in place. 
U.S. policy toward Cuba has changed over recent presidential administrations. The Herald walks us through the history. The Obama administration took steps toward normalizing relations with Cuba, but Trump reversed those policies. Biden pledged to reverse those reversals, potentially including restarting cruises and commercial flights, but he has not given specifics yet. While the GOP is urging a hard line, some Democrats are arguing for historic change. Some on the left, they're calling for an end to the U.S. trade embargo on Cuba. It's been in place for decades now. The White House has offered support for the Cuban people, but said little about potential policy changes. A country that drew little attention from the administration so far is now proving difficult to ignore. So I want to say that the U.S. embargo is, is delved in hypocrisy on both sides of it, right? So on the one end, you have them um, instituting an embargo uh, against an island in order to, it, the idea was to um, force Fidel Castro out of office. And, you know, they thought that eliminating trade would crush enough of the government and um, that, you know, knew they could put in or they could have somebody put in that would uh, allow for more uh, capitalistic um, ideologies. I mean, it hasn't worked, obviously. And so uh, what it's done is actually it's affected the people more than it's helped encourage them to rise up and move. Um, now, my people, people might say, well, yeah, the U.S. embargo is great because we have to continue to put pressure on him. But there's hypocrisy in the U.S. embargo because they don't do the same embargo against Saudi Arabia, who has human rights violations. They don't do the same embargo against China that has human rights violations. They don't do the embargo against Russia, Against that has human rights violations. Now, those part, countries are very important because China is a big investor in, in American um, in, in in American economy. China is also a communistic regime. You know, some may say it's not really communist, you know, regime, but you know, we can argue against that. But um, it's probably more of a metro 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 metro. Oh, I can't even say the word. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. Um, it's uh, so it, one of the things I would say is that it's really one of those uh, um, metrocracy. So that's what I'm trying to say. Um, China is a country that is uh, rampant with um, human rights violations, but they continue to be a heavy investor. And they also um, have geopolitical, um, uh, you know, uh, um, issues with America as far as in the in the South Pacific. But America still deals with them on a certain level. Even with all that being said, with all the investments that China has, the economic um, benefits they receive from lack of embargo, they are still human rights violations. So clearly it's not the economy that's a problem. It's the government. Same thing with Russia. Russia still deals with in trade with, with um, America and other um, European or Western allies. And still, Russia is still, a lot of the people in there are oppressed, and a number of Russians feel like there's a uh, metrocracy of, <laughs> uh, that is instituted by only a certain percentage of people eat very well, and a lot of people suffer. There's a lot of suffrage there, right? Hypocrisy. So why is it so hard for those to believe that even if the U.S., lifted this embargo against Cuba, that all of a sudden things would be fantastic. That's not true because the government still be in place, right? Because 80% of the income that still comes into the island is still controlled by the government. 
and they still would institute oppressive regimes. So we cannot be so myopic in our view that the U.S. embargo is the sole reason. It is a reason, though, but it's not the sole reason in which um, there's oppression on the island. I'd like to know as well why that continues to be the narrative that is um, that is spun. What I think is interesting about it is because you know I keep talking about the psychology and the trauma of it and, and propaganda and you know the layers of communism. When you are a Cuban citizen, you grow up your entire life being taught that America is the enemy. Yeah, America wants to disrupt our way of life. America wants to come in and tell us how to govern and. And America is the imperialist nation and America is going to invade and America is at fault for our problems. It's brainwashing. It's, let's just call it what it is. It's brainwashing. And you grow up your entire life hearing that over and over and over and over and over. And it's a little um, triggering really as a, as a Cuban American to be hearing that same message in the media today. Mm-hmm. It's very triggering, right? actually. I don't know how that narrative continues. It, it, if I had to guess, it really is just um, being used as an agenda for re-election. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a historian. I'm not a politician. But I just wish we would finally drop that narrative the Cuban Republican perspective that I've often heard is if you squeeze the snake's head, you squeeze hard enough. We recognize the Cuban people in Cuba. They're, they're going to suffer. It is going to impact them negatively. But if you squeeze hard enough and disrupt the way of life, the Cuban people will revolt what's happening now. So that's that narrative. I, I understand why many Cuban Republicans don't want to send medicine over to Cuba, don't want to send money, don't want to recharge phones. Right. They don't want to continue to send their dollars knowing it's only going to be contributing the Cuban regime. Right. I get that narrative. I 100% get that. But it's hurting people. It's hurting people. And so, like, you know, the I- ironic thing is that President Trump, um, so Obama in, in 2016... Or 2017, he um, yes, he ended the wet foot, dry foot initiative. Um, however, but when he well, the policy was put in place, and it started into it ended in 2017. Um, uh, but he also relaxed a few. Um, he relaxed the embargo and allowed for more flow of uh, tourism within the country. And that's when everybody in their their mama was going to Cuba for like that two years, and you know. Um, it was just, or like, but three or four years, it was like kind of like, oh, everybody trips to Cuba, but even in the midst of that, it was a very, it was still a very hard place for tourists to see that, um, you know, there was no no internet, no no um, phone lines were down in many parts of the island. Um, it the institutions of Cuba was very much broken. Um, then Trump gets in office. And based off the extremely powerful lobbyist group of the Cuban American Freedom, um, they, CAF, they pushed for harsher policies on Cuba. Like, let's put back in the embargo. Let's actually get tighter on them. And let's, as you put your point, squeeze the snake. 
But when you're squeezing the snake, the body's dying. And people in Cuba are dying. People in Cuba are really are hurting. Um, and so there's iron, you know, that's a, there's a terrible, um, ironic nature that, um, it's the Cuban people on the American side that are hurting the Cuban people on the Cuban side of the, you know what I mean? On the yes. Island, you know, yes. that's really the sad part about it. Yes. And, and this is not something that's comfortable to talk about. Um, yeah. I've had friends ask me. Cuban Americans have been calling for revolution for 62 years. Right. But do Cuban Americans emotionally, are they emotionally committed to what that means to the dead bodies of their family members in the streets at the sake of a revolution? Many do. I saw a recent post, as you as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, what happens when there's immigration, right? There's members that, uh, family members that get separated, family members that stay behind, children get separated from their parents. And there's a post I came across that was hailed as, you know, this is who we are as a people. This is how patriotic we are, how relentless we are. It was a, conver- a text conversation between a mother who lives here in America and her son, who for whatever reason was in Cuba, as is very common. And the son was telling her, Mom, the militants are coming. These are the stories you guys have been hearing where the police are coming into homes and they are making 16, 17, 18-year-olds re-enlist in the military, essentially, dress up as civilians and go into their own neighborhoods against their own people. Mm -hmm. And the son was telling him, Mom, they're going to come. They're eventually going to come for me and I'm going to have to do this. And the mother's response was, when they come, you do what you need to do. I have accepted what may happen by you rejecting them, but you act as a man and you stand in behalf, on behalf of your people and for your country. And you do not go willingly and you do not side with the communist regime. That mother was telling her son I've accepted you may die, you may be imprisoned, you may be tortured, 17, 18, 19 years old, but you're going to stand on the right side of history. In a nutshell, that is how the Cuban people are. Mm -hmm. I'll repeat again, when you had everything taken from you and you feel like there is nothing left, what are you willing to sacrifice? That's not the story or the perspective of every single Cuban American by any means, but I think it does speak to what a large population has has emotionally committed to. They have emotionally committed to, to the worst. What I can tell you, I think is what no one is talking about, the level of censorship in Cuba is extreme. I remember on one of my visits to see my family, we had a conversation about uh, like the Nazis or something happening in Hong Kong or, you know, just having these conversations. I think we were even seeing like a bootleg diehard film, something mm-hmm. like that. There was explosions and a family member who's a lawyer in Cuba, ironic, isn't it? Um, that we even have those, but a family member was just like, Oh my gosh, look at all those explosions. Like, Oh, I was like, what do you mean? Like, you're not used to, he's like, no, we don't, we don't see any of this stuff. We don't know about any of this. Like people need to realize Cubans aren't familiar with beheadings. They're not familiar with the atrocities of war. 
They are so censored. They really did not expect their own government to start shooting at them, to turn up, turn on them. Many people didn't think that this was capable. This is, this is like a child who has stayed an, an infant into their adult years. Mm. It's not to say that it's not, it's not about uh, intelligence. You know, it's not, it's not about stupidity. None of that. Remember, oppressors, psychological trauma. Right. They have no idea the consequences of this. They have no idea just how ugly things are going to get with this government. But a lot of them are opening up their eyes to it and they're still committing to the cause because you can't go back now. Mm-hmm. You didn't have a life before. You were given scraps and now you're tired of it. And now you realize, wait a minute, I've been lied to for my entire life. And not just me, but generations of my family have been lied to. And I'm done. So, you know, you, we talked about, and finally, I'm going to say, get it right a third time, meritocracy. <laughs> Nicely done. Yes. All right. Um, my tongue wanted to work this time. All right. So um, one of the things I want to highlight here is that um, we talked about the free education and you talk about everybody in, in Cuba has at least is like dual degreed up or whatnot. But in that education, it's state authorized education. So it's very much, um, you might have a, someone who's got a master's, but it's highly regimented as far as what they learn and how they see the world. So their scope of the world is entirely skewed, especially in terms of uh, when it comes to America, you have 62 years of state indoctrination, state indoctrination of education. So where even a lot of you hear Cuban Americans saying we need to um, we want U.S. involvement. But the people on an island like we don't want U.S. involvement. We just want freedom. We don't want U.S. to be involved because actually they have a disparate view towards America anyway, because that's what they've been taught for 62 years. No Internet controlled education. Of course, the guy, the, the the bad guy from ninety miles away, wants to kill us and destroy us, and and so we don't want them to be involved. Many. Many. That's one view. That's okay. That's one view. Right, right. One view. That's fair enough. Um. So, you know what we have here is people on an island. They're looking for freedom and to have um, total autonomy to govern themselves and do what they need to do in order to be an equalized society. And that's really what I was trying to uh, communicate. Um, on the other side of it, Cuban Americans um, are looking to, um, they want to infiltrate and have um, be, I guess, be reestablished the lines of uh, a capitalistic identity of the Cuban people. Um, I don't know what's the right answer to that question. You know, I don't know what's the right answer to do we do they want to go? Of course, you want to go back to freedom of trade. Right. But what does that look like? What does that look like as far as the government is concerned? Who are we going to have? Are we going to put back in the first Batista constitution of, you know, um, eight hour workday and, the you know, women's rights? And that, that was in the constitution, by the way, and that he ripped up. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I just, um, I just want to remind everyone, you know, as we've said, Cuba's not a monolith, right? Right. We know that Cuba's not a monolith. I don't know what Cuban Republicans are thinking. I don't know what white Cubans, after, 
it's so it's so complex folks this is a, this is extremely complex there are i've heard many different opinions one of them you mentioned we want to do this on our own this is our country we're proud of our country we're tired of the dis- this dictatorship we want to do this on our own we want to reestablish ourselves on our own i've heard the perspective of we want america's help however that looks like we recognize we can't do this by ourselves. We want the international community's help, and maybe not America's help, because America brings bombs and we don't want bombs. Mm-hmm. I've heard a variety of different things. I don't know how this is going to end up. All I can say is I hope my people are successful in overthrowing this regime. Mm-hmm. What comes after that, we may not like. Mm. Will it be better than how they are now? I sure hope so. Right. I sure hope so. I don't know what an intervention from the United States, whether it's military or by other means, how that's going to shape Cuba's future, Cuba's history. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping we can only go up from here. I was thinking, this sounds silly, but I'm going to ask anyway. Did you, did you ever watch that show, Loki? On I've this, started to. Start, started I've to. started to. Okay, then I can't, I was going to make You can't it, say too much. Oh, no. I was going to no. do a... No. Her, uh, you know, I was going to do a parallel. Can you skirt around it? I don't know, because it's a pretty big plot point. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a big plot point. But what I will say is that, you know, when you, we want to eliminate, you know, the big bad that's in office. Mm-hmm. But we have to be careful about, okay, when we eliminate, what's going to be in place? And that's the conversation that has to be in a hat right like what do we what does that look like for us what does freedom look like for us and some parts it's great to have a leaderless movement because right now the cuban government they don't they don't know who to stamp out it's like whack-a-mole right they don't know what to do you know um and i don't know that i agree with that you don't okay you know i i don't know that i do because there are many opposition leaders in cuba many opposition leaders cuban opposition leaders here in the united states i think my opinion is that it's naive of us to think that there aren't things happening in the background, strategic things happening in the background that have led us to get, you know, led us to this point. Mm. That's my opinion. To your point, though, right? Because said in the clip that we played, there was a, um, um, a political leader who was among those who were protesting. And I thought that was fascinating because I thought, well, well, wouldn't that put him in harm's way? You know, and so like I thought, like that's very interesting, and he was very open about it. Um, so to your point, though, you're right. You're right. There could be a lot of things happening. Should be a lot of things happening that we are not aware of that could come come about in the next uh, few days, or next few, coming in the coming weeks or months, whatever. However, that may look like. Um, so let me ask you about. Let's talk delve into the political situation, politics, American politics, right? Um, oh joy! <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that we, um, I, I guess, the problem we have in this country is that we take causes on both sides. Of this, we do this, and then we homogenize that cause for our own political idealism, and we make it to where it helps push a narrative that's probably formed or from the origination of that that cause. Um, we've I've we've seen it. We mentioned Black Lives Matter. We see have Democrats have some have taken those things in order to propel their elections 
and then you know use it as a fulcrum for their uh, for their legislative push. But in reality, when it comes to really pushing for voters' rights and everything, then all of a sudden we have to look for compromise. They weren't talking about compromise in the 2020 election. They were saying, you know, you know, full steam ahead, you know, revolution, viva la revolution in the Democratic Party, talk about all that stuff. Now it's like, well, let's put a pause on everything and let's be thoughtful. Let's be thoughtful. Thoughtful compromise is the name of the game at this point, right? Um, it's happening. It happens on the this side regarding Republicans and um, the hypocrisy they use towards um, Cuban Americans. Um, they use them as political ploys in a larger sco- larger scheme for their initiative. And I'm going to play a clip here, and then I'm, we're going to discuss that. As long as people have been protesting in the United States and indeed around the world, they have been marching in the streets. Literally, that's where the phrase comes from, you know, taking to the streets. It's not taking to the sidewalks. And that means sometimes blocking traffic. I mean, that was true of a lot of Black Lives Matter protests after the murder of George Floyd last summer. People took to the streets, sometimes even closing down highways. And we saw this very disturbing trend of people driving cars through protests in those streets. Protesters getting injured as a result. And then, to literally add insults to injury, Republicans in certain states started protecting the drivers who used their cars as weapons. One of those states was Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill granting civil immunity to those drivers and making it a felony for protesters to block a highway. Well, guess what? We've got one of the first trials of this law yesterday. Ron DeSantis and his crew, you know they're going to get tough because they have no tolerance for this kind of thing. Look at this. Protesters yesterday having the audacity to close down a Florida highway, marching right down the middle of the street. Florida law enforcement came in, threw the book at them, right? Well, no, of course not. Those protesters were protesting the communist regime in Cuba in solidarity with street protests happening there, which, by the way, I'm sure are also blocking traffic, and which Republicans like Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantis all love because they hate the Cuban regime. Those protests in Cuba have erupted as pharmaceutical prices have spiked. Drug access has been difficult during the COVID pandemic. And because those are the kind of protests that Florida Republicans like Ron DeSantis like, of course, they are not going to try to enforce this new law against those Floridians who took to the streets and blocked traffic to protest the Cuban regime. As far as we can figure out, only a few people arrested at those protests, even though they are all clearly in violation. Precisely the thing DeSantis just made a big show about criminalizing. Because none of this was actually about some kind of principle. It has to do with who is doing the protesting. That's what the law that DeSantis passed in the wake of the BLM protest has always been around. It's not about some general, generally applicable principles. It's about the ultimate Trump fantasy, using the system to put the screws to your political enemies. So um, this actually goes into the next portion of our you know, discussion, talking about the politics surrounding um, Cuban-Americans and how um, they're experiences have been so politicized that, uh, you know, it's hard for those on the outside looking in to almost relate to what they're going through because they've actively and, you know, unintentionally some part, um, have, um, operated within a political, um, diagram that it's, um, right wing talking points and seen as privileged and seen as privileged, you know? And so, 
Um, I think that's first of all, shout out to the fact that uh, Ron DeSantis of law because we're actually suing him. And so, you know, I love that he walked himself into that very own um, stupid law because we're definitely going to use that against him. But, you know, I, I, I wonder in the last election, I think um, 80 percent of Cubans voted on behalf of Trump. And how do they see somebody like a strong man in Trump and still decide to vote for him? Because that you would think that would be the thing of like, oh, I recognize these personality, this personality. I don't want even anything to deal with that. But no, it actually ramped it up his his um, appeal. So maybe you can speak on that. Yes. What I want people to understand about Cubans and their experiences in Cuba with the dictatorship and and how a lot of that contributes to the political decisions that many Cubans, remember not a monolith, but many Cubans decide to make inside with individuals like Trump. If a Cuban catches wind, just sniffs anything remotely resembling communism, or socialism, they will go in the extreme opposite direction to the point where they will turn a blind eye to the lesser qualities of that individual. That is the simplest way that I can put it because I have asked myself that question my entire life, especially, um, you know, the, the particular question of if you can recognize a dictator from a mile away, how are you choosing to align yourself with someone resembling those qualities? How, you know, walk me through that. How is that possible? And when I've asked older, older generations of Cubans, it's, that's simply what it is. We cannot tolerate the United States, the, 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 the country that now we call home as American citizens, as taxpaying citizens, contributors to this country. We, we cannot allow anything remotely resembling what we went through in Cuba to make its way in American soil. Mm-hmm. So they would just not even bat an eye. Mm-hmm. It does not matter if, let's say, let's say the Republican Party stood for uh, we're going to start cutting off toes. Right. You're against this. We're going to cut off toes. They would say, all right, we're going to cut off toes, but you're not going to be communist. Right. Right. We'll give you our toes. It's just that name. is such a triggering. That term is such a triggering term for them that they, they, anything that, and I've seen it, you know, anything that's labeled socialism, like, Oh, no, 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 we don't want that. Nope. You know, not that, not that. And it's like, you know, it, it's, it's also racism will tolerate. Mm, yeah, you know, we can, we we'll can, fi- we'll figure that out. We can stomach that. It's not as bad. It's not right. as bad, but socialism, right. no, that is repressive. That's no. And so they've, they've coalesced around this idea that anything surrounding the term communism is bad and everything else is tolerable. It's tolerable. It's tolerable. I can stomach it. Right. You know, um, and actually goes into re- re-education, right? Because what people don't, they confuse what communism is. They confuse communism with socialism. Communism is obviously, it's the state in which it's a basis of socialism, but it's where the government 
um, it controls all the means of uh, finance. Socialism is the idea that the government looks to make it more of egalitarian in um, certain functions of society. There's, therefore, you can have democratic socialism, right? So, you know, we talk about free education. We talk about um, free health care. When people think about socialism, you know, they think of things like China or Cuba, right, or Venezuela, right? But they don't think about things like the United Kingdom. Nobody would consider the United Kingdom or, you know, Britain as the as a socialist society, but then there's free health care and there's education, right? Um, so, and Germany, same thing, right? So nobody thinks of it as communism. So what happens is, is uh, you've had Republicans, um, they've, Taken that idea, they recognize the troubling word in which that has against Cuban Americans, and they pounded into you guys like, and I, don't, I hate to say you guys, but pounded into Cuban Americans' um, psychology to where that they don't even look up from you know the car that they're being taken into. They just kind of jump in the car and be like, "All right, this is the direction we're going in." Is that a fair you know characterization? I would say so, and it certainly doesn't help that there are some Democratic uh, leaders who who go out to say things like, uh, you know. Um, Fidel was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Fidel was a great guy. Um, sympathy mm-hmm. toward communist regime or, you know, I know it doesn't help. It does not help. Yeah. Truly, truly. The Cuban Republican body is a relentless, mighty force. Yeah. And I, uh, I I heard a bit of your recent podcast about Haiti. Mm-hmm. And I believe your guest speaker was talking about how there just isn't that patriotism in Haiti. Yeah. Shout out to the fact you listen to podcasts. Shout out to that. <laughs> Absolutely. You're doing great things and we have to support that. Um, how there isn't that patriotism in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Cuba has never lacked. Yeah. Never, ever lacked in patriotism, even after... Uh, leaving Cuba, being exiled from Cuba, being uh, becoming an American citizen, it's in our blood. And our blood boils, boils at what's happening in Cuba. There's a lot of, uh, there's a generation of Cuban, probably several generations of Cuban, who have this idea in their heads that one day this will all be over and we'll get to return home. Yeah, I forget there's a term, but there's a term of returning back home. There's the Spanish term that you guys use. Oh gosh, I don't remember right now. I'm sure there is. Yeah. I'm sure there is. Um, that lives with all of us. Yeah. Realistically, for me, my husband in here is here, my daughter is here, my parents are here. My return to home with Cuba is gonna look different. But yeah. what I would love is to be able to hop on a plane. Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna spend the weekend with my family celebrating the holidays. Yeah. I would love for my daughter to not be taught the history of her people by someone else, but to experience it herself. Yeah. She is entitled to so many things here in America as an American citizen. She never has to dispute that. Maybe when it comes down to her race, because she's biracial, she is half Asian and half black. She's half Korean American and half Cuban. But she has a social security number. She has a birth certificate. She was born on American soil. 
I have no claim to anything in Cuba. And I was born there. My entire family was born there. Generations of my family were born there. And we have claim to nothing. And it's just not fair. Yeah. And we refuse to lie down and not use the momentum of this moment to bring awareness to what's happening on the island. And I recognize that it's selfish to ask for help. I recognize that. Yeah. I recognize that other communities of immigrants call us hypocrites, can't relate to us, don't want to stand by the cause, but I have to ask it anyways because when a genocide is happening 90 miles away, that's a strong and powerful word, a word that I never thought I would use for the country in which I'm from. When the people don't have weapons, when the people have to use sticks and stones to literally defend themselves against militants with guns how could you not ask for help and how could you not actually look at that with uh, human through humanitarian lens absolutely outside the scope of how you may feel about cuban american politics right how could you not say well you know what what's happening over there excuse my language fucked up right so i mean it's just like we we how can we ignore that turn a blind eye towards it and, you know, I'm sorry, my heart goes out to you and, and the people on, on island because I'm sure not only those who are here and have very much real experiences that you just shared about um, not b- being able to go back, but those on the island. And I just want to, I just want to, again, tie in the black American experience. A lot of black Americans don't feel like they can go back to Africa. Right. They feel disconnected. They're disconnected to the island. Let's say for whatever reason, you know, we... We're just like, everybody's going to go back to Africa and, you know, live and we're going to immigrate. That would be a very much of a different experience for a lot of people. Yes. You know, not saying we can't, because we can still go there. That's one of the benefits, you know, outside of the, there's not an embargo against Nigeria. There's not an embargo against Ghana, right? So we can actually fly. And that's one of of the um, privileges we have. But going there and setting up residency, there's a disconnect because of hundreds of years of a disconnect that were there. Now, you're saying there's a disconnect. It was only been 62 years. I'd say only in air quotes, right? Um, So that's something that we should be able to look at and be like, yeah, I get it. I understand it. Um, And and not ignore it because we don't like who they voted for. Or the agenda that they're pushing. Or the agenda that's been pushed upon them. It's tough to act, to see things as, you know, one human being to another. Mm -hmm. Humans are complex. Like I said, I get it. I I get it. <laughs> I don't know what I would do if I was in their shoes, just like I don't know what I would do if I was in the ground in Cuba. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say that I would be fighting alongside my people, but who knows, maybe I'd be a coward because I have a young child right. and I can't risk going to jail and my young daughter ending up under what conditions and with who. Right. It's this is this is a this is a game that no one wins in folks. Yeah. No one wins in. We just we just need awareness. We need people to listen to us and we need people to amplify our voices and and what we need is the correct narrative being told 
And we need people to stay vigilant. I don't know if you recently saw that now the Cuban government has its own protests that they're doing in Cuba. Mm-mm. This is another example of just the beauty of communism and manipulation. The, the Cuban government has, I think it either started yesterday or today, Friday, I, I, don't, I don't remember now, but they have asked, asked, air quotations, for their revolutionaries to take to the streets as well and to show the world that this is just a bunch of young delinquents trying to disrupt our way of life in Cuba. Our beautiful life in Cuba. Our beautiful, uh, structured, sustainable life in Cuba. Nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. This is just American social media antics riling up our people. What no one is talking about, and this is where I want people to be very careful because this is where we start to hear different narratives. Yes, there will always be sympathizers when it comes to causes. There's always going to be someone who truly is still so brainwashed. That even as they're being beaten by their own regime, they're chanting for the success of that same regime. But the people you're seeing protesting in front of universities, in front of churches, these are young people who have been pulled out of the universities and threatened. These are people who have been threatened with death, death upon their families. These are these are people who are having to say slogans and jumping and chanting as if they're pro-revolutionaries when they're being threatened to be there. These are not people who want to be there, just like those children who are being taken by militants and being dressed as civilians to beat on their own neighbors. These are not people who want to be there. They're told to be there mm-hmm. so that America and the international community can see, oh, this is just some scuffle between Cubans. This isn't no, right. this isn't really, it's Th- not a thing. Not a thing. And they're using, they're using their own citizens as a way to divert attention from the atrocities within the government. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you don't want, it's like almost like uh, you don't want people to lose the message. Like yes. you want everybody to understand what's getting ready to happen and, you know, the propaganda that's getting ready to be infused because now they've had, the international communities has started paying attention. This stuff has been going on since April, but now in the last two weeks, international communities starting to focus like what is happening on this island that people are rising up and so the government's like whoa 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 we got to get uh, get a hold of this narrative because we don't want something that we don't want to be usurped um and so strategy it's strategy it's all strategy you know and so i mean i just to kind of uh pivot back here because i'm going to you know and and this program on um on the uh politics of the situation uh one thing I will say that Republicans have done is that they've utilized the, the Cuban-American experience to push their agenda, and they, they want to say, because the agenda is, as we mentioned, anti-socialism, anti-communism, right? And it doesn't matter who the people are as long as it follows along that idea of we're anti-communism, anti-socialism. And it just so happens that this happens to be a society that's 90 miles from the U.S. border. And so, you know, let's go ahead and continue to say and, and uplift their people, even in the fact that it makes them isolated within the country for people to not relate to them. Because now you're, you're isolated. People, you're, you're isolated on an island and now you're isolated on a political island here in the U.S. because there's only so many Cuban-Americans in the country. And then when you have Cuban, when you have a rest of America especially those uh, Americans that built big racial melting pot, looking at Cuban Americans, they'd be like, what do you guys have to 
complain about? What do you guys, you, you guys are, you guys have had it sweet. And now you're, you're between a rock and a hard place. And it just, just like an abused um, individual, you go to the person, the comforter, the only comforter that's opening up their arms. Cause the other side was like, uh, you guys, we don't care about your, your experience. And I've actually talked with black Americans this, some this week. Now, obviously this is more just, um, just, you know, talking in just an unofficial capacity, but that's how they feel like, uh, they're always, they, they've, they've had it easy, you know, but now they're asking for help and it's kind of like, we'll turn a blind eye. We don't care. And that's a problem. And we can't do that because what happens in politics is that they separate us and they create a divide between us. And, you know, they when you have a divide, then it allows their messaging and not the message of the people. And it, it, it takes away the message of humanity. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm gonna let you uh, go ahead and, um, give you your final thoughts on this and we'll, we can wrap up. This reminds me of, so after the Black Lives Matter protests and we started seeing a lot about stop AAPI hate, mm-hmm. which is you can imagine me having a half Asian daughter. I was very interested in this issue as well and standing with solidarity and showing my support and a lot of my Asian friends confided in me and said, you know, we're really disillusioned with the black community because we stood with them but they don't want to stand with us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that I know in the black community said, well, why should we? Asian people have never treated us well. They've never seen us as equal. Asian people have never cared before, but oh, but now that suddenly they're at the end of, of hate crimes. And now that they're the victims, now they want to call on us to assist. That's what this reminds me of. And one of the many posts I saw on social media was calling out and saying, the more that we continue to divide amongst ourselves and fight amongst ourselves, they are winning. Because what, ha- what would happen, dare to dream, if we all united mm-hmm. against our oppressor? What would happen? They would lose. Yeah. Dare to dream, we may actually shape this world into a vision that we all want it to be. But instead we're wasting our time comparing traumas and trying to figure out who's is more worthy at that time. And like I said, I get it. A lot of decisions by the Cuban Republican community, the Cuban community doesn't sit well with members of the black community. I understand that, but this is where I call on people to lift their own veil and ask yourselves, what does that have to do with my people dying at the hands of the regime on the island? You're willing yeah. to punish them because of what's happening here in the U.S. What does that have to do with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's real. And I, I do want to offer one pushback, small pushback, that there, I, there was, just like in the Cuban population, it's not a monolithic, there was monolith, um, I know I saw within segments and not, it wasn't all that there was voices speaking up for Asian, um, Asian Americans. I did as well. Yeah. And I so well. I do want to highlight, but you're right that I did also being fair, heard arguments on that side as well on black American side, like, yeah, you know, the disproportionate treatment that we, that we've received from, you know, certain sectors of the Asian community um, was not always fair, but you know, we did a podcast on that. 
a few weeks, a few months ago. But um, so it it, it depends, and it's actually certain sectors of the Asian community, right? Um, that actually are more closely aligned with Black American um, social stances than others, and so there's that. But I I do I do agree with you that we have to look amongst ourselves and place humanity at the center of our consciousness and not be allowed to be dissuaded or, um, uh, you know, even manipulated into not caring for one another. Because when you have that, when you have people who are controlling the narrative, then, you know, oftentimes, you know, we allow those in power to continue. And that doesn't benefit anybody. And really what you're hurting is you're hurting the people. And so what I want everybody to do is to continue to learn more about Cuba, learn about, listen to the Cuban people, figure out what is going on, but at the same time, always put humanity at the center of your consciousness and your, and your, and your conversation. Um, strip away your political ideology. I may not have liked the way you may have voted on something, but I don't want to see you suffer, right? Because at the same time, we don't want somebody to see us suffer because we don't agree with them politically. And I think that's really one of the biggest um, uh, takeaways. And I really do uh, thank you so much for thank jumping you. on this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it, you know, and um, I hope everybody who's listening enjoyed this podcast. Tough subject. I don't think we answered everything, but I think we at least hopefully educated you enough. And um, I'm always looking for a follow up, always looking to get feedback. And if I miss a few marks, listen, I'm human and I'm willing to accept that and say, hey, Kamara, listen to your podcast wish you would have addressed this that and the third we can always um do a follow-up i'm definitely going to do a follow-up of the um haiti uh podcast so um thank you guys thank you guys for listening and with that i'm going to play the song that i mentioned that started not started but you know provided this cinder for this um inferno of a re- revolution that's currently happening on the island and oh. if, if i may very quickly yeah just to encourage folks um in that spirit of amplification when someone, if anyone reaches out to you and says, hey, please, please just repost, repost, hashtag SOS Cuba. We're trying to remain relevant. We're trying to continue to w- raise awareness so that we can continue to put pressure in the right places to see change. So please repost. Please keep talking about it and use hashtag SOS Cuba. What does SOS Cuba represent? It's basically, um, as you guys may have heard this is really just a social media movement. Yeah. So all of the people on the ground that do have access to internet are sending in videos stateside so you can see the atrocities being committed and the SOS Cuba hashtag is being used as a way to capture all the videos, mm. to capture the testimonies. Yeah. Um, and also if someone is missing or someone has passed, that's being used from Cuba to us to relay this person was captured. Yeah. So and so. So it's, it's just a, a funnel of information that a lot of us use as our lifeline to keep in touch with what's happening on the island. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. See, I'm gonna and I'm gonna include that in the uh, my notes of this episode so thank it you. continues to um, spread. The message gets spread. So, um, thank you for that. And again, I'm gonna play the song that we mentioned, and it's all in Spanish. So, but it's still a beautiful song. So, guys, I'm gonna play a portion of it. Eres tú mi canto de sirena Porque con tu voz se van mis penas 
Y este sentimiento ya es tan viejo Tú me dueles tanto aunque estés lejos Hoy yo te invito a caminar por mis solares Pa' demostrarte de que sí ven tus ideales Somos humanos aunque no pensemos iguales No nos tratemos ni dañemos como animales Esta es mi forma de decírtelo Llora mi pueblo y siento yo su voz Tu 59 yo doble dos, 60 años, trancado al dominó Mambo ah, y platillo a los 500 de La Habana Mientras en casa las cazuelas ya no tienen jama Que celebramos si la gente anda deprisa Cambiando Che Guevara y ama tipo la divisa Todo ha cambiado, ya no es lo mismo Entre tú y yo hay un abismo Publicidad, un paraíso, un varadero